Uh, we're going to continue to look at uh, the book of Acts. So we'll look at the rest of chapter 16. Uh, please turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, where you're seated, it's page 601 um, at the end of that page. Um, I'm in a, uh, there's a Facebook group of pastors and they joke around and about some things, and one of them asked a serious question of, what are you preaching on Mother's Day? Um, and are you changing your series? Are you doing something uh, specifically for mothers? And as they went down, uh, you know, one guy, he said, I'm preaching through Revelation, and it gets to the beast of Revelation, because my, my wife told me I couldn't make any mother-in-law jokes. I was like, oh my gosh, I think I would change that text. <laughs> so... Um, anyway, uh, this is a wonderful day that we can gather together and know that God is the great comforter, and we celebrate the women in our lives that he has blessed us with, and uh, we're glad that you're here this morning joining us in worship. Uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning is um, there are three events that happen in uh, the town of Philippi that sort of form the Philippian church. And the first event is Lydia, the seller of purple goods, the first convert on the European continent, present-day European continent. Um, and she is very hospitable, welcomes them into her home. And then there's also the woman who had an evil spirit that we looked at last week, uh, a slave girl uh, that really had nothing and was, didn't even own herself. She was owned by other people. And then uh, this morning, what we'll look at is the Philippian jailer. And so really, it's the three of these that form, that begin to form this Philippian church. If you read the book of Philippians uh, ever, it is a short four-chapter book, and it is about Paul having great affection for this church. So let me read the passage we'll look at this morning. It's uh, Acts 16, like I said, I'll read... Uh, starting at, at verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sir, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his household. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What's happening here is uh, Paul and Silas are in prison. And uh, they have moved from, uh, well, first, this journey that they've been on was several hundred miles, two to three hundred miles. 
And we, if you remember any of last week's sermon, okay, I probably don't either, but uh, anything last week, uh, they went and the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, did not allow them to proclaim the gospel in their travels in certain cities. But they kept moving and they kept walking. In their discouragement, they kept the understanding that God is with them and this message of the gospel goes forth. What happens here is they're in prison and the, the jailer is asleep. And so if you put yourself in their shoes, if you've gone several hundred miles, uh, the Spirit of God has kept you from the mission that you know you're supposed to do, which is proclaim the good mercy of Jesus. And you can't do that. And now you've been uh, stoned and stripped and thrown into prison. At one point, at what point do you begin to be discouraged and say, I'm done. Uh, we would all have that conversation in our head of, I'm done. Uh, especially uh, because of our great love for comfort as Westerners. But what happens? They're in prison. And what are they doing in prison? Uh, what I would do at this point is say, you know what? I'm taking a break from this proclaiming Jesus' work. I'm in prison, and I'm just going to sit here, and I'm going to get some rest. I'm going to let my wounds heal, heal, and I'm just going to sit here. But what do they do? They begin to sing, and they begin to pray. In their dark cell, they chose to seek the only comfort that they knew, not the comfort of physical rest, thinking that this is actually going to help them and restore them, but they pray, and they sing, and they're acknowledging their weakness in light of this troubling situation. And they had an audience. Uh, they had the audience of the prisoners. We, we see the prison guard, he awoke, so he obviously isn't listening to their concert of prayer and praise. The other prisoners are listening to it. But they're prisoners. Uh, they, are, they are the worst of the worst. Men who were not working on their education. Men who uh, were not reading about how to be better husbands or fathers, these men were really going nowhere. A Roman prison was not a training ground to become a better citizen. They weren't trying to improve themselves. They were hardened men. Some of you have been in prison. Some of you know close family members who've been in prison. You know that it is not a pleasant thing. And you know the experience of the depth of evil that is known in those places. But Paul and Silas prayed and sang because they knew that those fellow prisoners were made in the image of God. And I don't think this was their evangelism technique of let's have a little concert and people are going to hear and then they're going to ask about Jesus and then they're going to know Jesus. Uh, they were praying and singing because they're probably at their end. And what are they going to do? There's something humbling about prayer and song when you're in the depth of despair um, because your prayers aren't as eloquent as they are when everything is going well and you can take time and work through things. Uh, in the midst of despair, of despair uh, our prayers become very short, uh, at least in my experience, and a lot of silence and a lot of just sitting before God. 
But what Paul and Silas know is they are to promote God's mercy. Promoting God's mercy at this point, being bound and shackled in a dark prison is through praying and through faith, which shows their devotion. It shows that they've walked hundreds of miles and and gone through all these situations and been stoned and, and ridiculed, and now they're in prison, and they know that their only hope there and forever is in God alone, and it shows their devotion. In times of misery, it shows their devotion. What are they really, what is their life really about? And do they understand God's unconditional love and guidance to them? I was reading about uh, marital counseling recently, and one counselor, uh, when, when she gives marital counseling, one of the things she does is she gives each husband and wife a notepad, and then she asks them, do you love your spouse unconditionally? And we all would say, well, yes, of course we do. And then she says, okay, great. Now write down all the conditions of your unconditional love on that piece of paper. Because our love is really not unconditional. But what we see here with Paul and Silas is that they are in the midst of suffering, yet they're really understanding God's love for them and their love for God. And they understand that the mission of God is a dangerous mission that they are on. We don't read of their complaint that missions work should be easier. We don't read of um, them saying God should at least keep uh, the workers of God's mission immune from suffering. They know that shining a light in the darkness is hard, and actually it is not even humanly possible to do. It is purely a work of God that transforms someone, that shines light on the darkness of their life, that draws them to faith and repentance. I think what's so interesting is uh, we read about Paul and Silas and other uh, people in the book of Acts and the suffering they went through, but then somehow in our own life, when it happens, we're shocked by it. Somehow we have this idea that it really shouldn't happen to us at this time. Everything should be much more peaceful and orderly, and we should have comfort in so many other things, and maybe even wealth, and then we'll be able to devote ourselves to the mission of God. So why are you surprised at discouragement in your life? Why is that a surprising thing? If we, if we read about uh, the story of the early church, it was discouragement after discouragement after discouragement after amazing, miraculous thing after discouragement after discouragement. Why does it surprise us? At the core of it, I think, it's because we really we live in this tension that we are still more devoted to our own plan than we are to the mission of God. We see that in the actions of Paul and Silas. They're really opposite of what we would expect if you and I were in prison together. They sang and prayed instead of grumbled in their imprisonment. 
They did not run for, for freedom when the earthquake came. Uh, that is shocking. Uh, if you and I are in prison, um, and we're, we are praying, and there's an earthquake, and everyone is set free, I'm going to say, that's an answer to prayer. Let's get out of here. It is going to be a quick conversation, and we are going to run. But what happens is they don't even leave. They didn't even run for freedom when the earthquake had given them their way out. But what this earthquake did, it is this earthquake actually set the Philippian jailer free. Paul and Silas are already free. They already have assurance and contentment. They know Jesus. This jailer, it says he awoke. That means he failed at the only duty he had was to stay awake and watch the prisoners. And he failed. A jail guard was only as valuable as his devotion to his duty. Failure in career meant utter failure in life. Either by his own hand, which he was attempting to, which was suicide, the only honorable thing to do was to kill yourself. Or by the Roman government, that he would be executed because, well, you failed. But we still, many times, devote ourselves to duty that will eventually destroy us. Not understanding who is devoted to us. The good life, which is what we all aim for in some way, we all dream about. And your dream of the good life may look different than mine, but at some, at some point it's all sort of going in the same direction. And we think if we have greater duty and devotion to career, uh, we have better career performance that we're going to reach this place. And we're going to find this peace and contentment. But what happens in this narrative is the Philippian jailer asks this question, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Which really raises a great question. What, what really is he asking? He was about to kill himself. Did the jailer really, was he seeking salvation in Jesus? Did he know the message that Paul and Silas were communicating? Because he was asleep when they were singing and praying. But did he hear about it in the town? Did he know? Or is his question, how do you get me out of this circumstance? How, do you, how am I saved from my present life because I'm going to die? We don't really know, and uh, commentators sort of land in different places on this. But at some level, he was looking for the Philippian jailer, peace of mind, release from fear, and a sense of security, uh, which is salvation in Jesus. I think the second question in here is, question we ask ourselves a lot more. How do we, how do we find, uh, how do we get saved out of our circumstances? How do you get all your work done in your day to feel like a good accomplished employee? How do you uh, build a strong marriage? How do you make time to love your kids well and to nurture them as they grow? How do you stay sane in a busy world? 
what must I do to be saved? The shocking thing is it's the same answer. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. What must you do to be saved from uh, the burden of work and home and family and you're exhausted? What is going to help? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Not as a a platitude that somehow is going to magically help you, but what it does is it lines up your life where your priorities begin begin to be in line the way they are called to be. And so this answer to the Philippian jailer answers both of them. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Acknowledge and accept that uh, there is a God and he has authority over all things. Nothing is outside of his hand. All dilemmas and choices have something to do with what you believe. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the best Answer is found in Jesus. This is a question for anyone. Whether you, uh, you are a Christian this morning, that's a really good question to ask yourself. Or whether you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, you're, just, you're still trying to figure out what you believe. The best place to start with confusion in life is to figure out who is ultimately in charge. Here we read about Paul and Silas's missionary tactics. Even in the midst of prison, uh, at midnight, uh, when there's this earthquake, and then they see this uh, jail guard ready to commit suicide right in front of them, they realize this is time for evangelism. This is time to tell people about the good news of Jesus. Not questioning whether God is calling them to share the gospel. Have they prayed enough about it? Are they well organized enough? They just know, yeah, this is it. Uh, as, as Christians, if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, uh, we spend a lot of our life in uh, ready, aim. A lot of our Christian training, ready, aim. And we just go over and over this cycle. Ready, aim. You need more knowledge. You need to understand something better. You need to be able to phrase it in a certain way. And what we do is we don't have a lot of fire. Like, just go love on your neighbor. Tell them about the most significant thing in your life. Because ready, aim is so much easier. And it's so much more comfortable. And we actually like it a lot more. But what we read about in the early church is there was a little bit of ready aim, but there was a lot of just fire. There was a lot of, yeah, there's a Philippian jailer and he's suicidal. I'm going to tell him about Jesus. This, uh, we saw Paul last week, this, this young woman who's a slave woman who's annoying to them that he casts out the evil spirit within her. And then they all gather at the jailer's house. And they celebrate God's faithfulness through suffering. They're at the jailer's house. What God is doing is he's forming a a church in Philippi by all of these activities. How thankful was the jailer that through Paul and Silas' suffering, they were still faithful proclaimers of Jesus. That they didn't do what I really would have done, which was, I'm just taking a break. 
I'm just going to check out from telling people about Jesus. I'm in prison. What's this really going to do? How did Paul and Silas become so bold in this? I think they understood that they had nothing to lose and everything to gain because they understood that Jesus is Lord, that he is in charge of all things. They knew that jail time did not mean God's mission was put on hold. They believed in Jesus and trusted that uh, Jesus knows what he's doing by allowing them to be in prison. Which means your plans, when they don't turn out the way you want them to, it is because Jesus is writing a different story for your life. And your first step this morning might be to repent and be embraced by the comfort of God's love and grace and mercy. A God whose plans are never thwarted. A God who will never, ever leave you, nor forsake you. In 2 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul writes about uh, these churches in Macedonia, this region, this church in Philippi. And he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in, severe, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on your part. Because of their severe affliction and poverty, they served more. Which is really counterintuitive to the way that we like to think about growth in the Christian life. That uh, when, when, we, when we don't have a lot, we'll just be a little bit generous with our time, our finances, our relationships. And then slowly when we get more, then we'll, it'll be so much easier to be generous. Instead of these churches in their own affliction, they serve more and more. The Philippian church is, was a gathering of uh, Lydia, a woman of wealth and hospitality, a young slave girl who has been released from oppression and from an evil spirit, and now the Philippian jailer who was once suicidal. Would you go to their church? <laughs> an unlikely group to begin a church. But this is what the work of Jesus does. And you may be here in Colorado Springs because your much better plans fell through. And you're just here waiting for something better. And you know what that thing is. It is much better. But in this time of waiting, uh, what will you do? What is God calling you to do in the midst of waiting? You have greater dreams. You feel like you're waiting for your life to begin. If you are someone who trusts in Jesus this morning, I think I can accurately say that you might be here because Jesus is doing great work in your neighborhood and where you live and the coffee shops and the stores that you interact with regularly, that Jesus is doing a great work in that and he wants to include you in it. And maybe that's why you're here. There's this idea that Colorado Springs 
some people, I've heard it said it's the Wheaton of the West, that Colorado Springs is just full of Christians. Uh, 66% of Colorado Springs has no religious affiliation at all. We are, uh, Denver only has 49% of people who say they have no religious affiliation. So Colorado Springs has more unchurched people, people that are not here, not interested in being involved in any type of religion. We have a higher percentage of them than the city of Denver. So why are you here if you're a Christian? That's why you're here. We know you have great dreams. We all have dreams that we want God to line up with so they can actually happen. But in the meantime, can we all join together and realize there are people around us who do not know Jesus and have no hope and are trying to ask the hard questions about life? And will you and I take the time to engage them and to get to know them and maybe be so bold with them that we ask them, what do you believe? And extend value to them and listen to them so we really hear what they believe. What is Jesus calling you to invest in with your life? Even this summer, what does your life look like? What do you want to invest in? How do you make decisions as you look toward your summer? And understand that walking in faithfulness and proclaiming the good news of Jesus and getting to know your neighbors is hard. It's hard. There is no other answer for it. It is hard. But this is what we're called to do. In Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? God has placed you specifically here. And you can, we can all gather together and grumble and complain and talk about all the things we hate about Colorado Springs, our neighborhood, whatever it is. But the reality is we are all here. And if you understand the gospel, you are here because that is the mission of God, that the gospel would go forth, the good news of Jesus. And what is the good news of Jesus? What's a great answer to this? Uh, what must I do to be saved? The answer is repent and believe. That's it. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. That's it. And then join us as we wrestle through life of uh, living in the disappointment and despair and grief that is in this broken world, and we join together and figure out what does it mean to walk faithfully? Because that's what we're trying to do as a community. This passage is about the great boldness of Paul and Silas, and in their boldness, the great work is not done because they are bold. The great work is done because God always works. God is always doing something. And how can you and I see what God's doing and walk in faithfulness and be a part of that?
What would it look like for this summer for you to take steps to love the people around you who are not affiliated with any religious belief system? What would that look like for you? Let me pray as we uh, come to this table this morning and celebrate the great and perfect work of Jesus together. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. You never leave your children. Even in uh, times of hurt and despair and confusion, you always walk with us. And we pray that we would uh, know that more and be able to experience that and proclaim that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.